I've been watching a, a video like that since we started doing these back in 2002. And the older I get, the harder it is to watch, <laughs> particularly this year. Because there are people on that list whom you and I love, and we miss them. So I believe an important question for us to ask today, appropriately, is how is heaven possible? You ever thought about that? How is heaven possible? How is it even possible that anyone might gain heaven? You know, if you pay attention to surveys of people who believe in a life after death, one thing becomes real clear. Most people assume heaven is where they'll end up. And, and if you have conversations with lost people on a regular basis and you ask them where they think they will go after they die, most people assume heaven is their destination. Almost like it's inevitable. So how is heaven possible might be a legitimate question since the overwhelming majority of people aren't really worried about an afterlife anywhere else. But thankfully, the Bible answers the question of how heaven is possible. And it does so in lots of different places in the scriptures. And there are lots of different passages and, and hundreds of different approaches to the subject of heaven that we could take today. But my goal this morning is not to exposit the what, where, and when of heaven. But as we close 2023, I simply want us to look at the how of heaven. Now, it certainly would be interesting to look into the what heaven will be like and where the redeemed will dwell and even when the timing of the new heaven and earth would take place. But if we don't grasp how heaven is possible in the first place, we miss the point of all those other details. Let me ask you a question. What is on the screen right now? What is it? Talk to me. It's a bee. And if you watch a bee fly, it's a pretty neat thing to watch a bee fly. But I bet when you watch a bee fly, you don't ask how is it possible that a bee can fly? But that's a legitimate question because the flight of a bee should not be possible. To quote one of my family's favorite movies, the bee movie, according to all laws, known laws of aviation, there is no way that a bee should be able to fly. Its wings are too small to get its fat little body off the ground. The bee, of course, flies anyway because bees don't care what humans think is impossible. Now, for most of us, when we see a bee fly, we simply believe that a bee can fly, but we don't actually know how it's possible. We just assume it is possible. And that's the same problem that people face about the life after this life. Heaven is just assumed by most people today. And folks rarely ask the question, how is heaven possible? Just watch the news. It doesn't matter who dies, the assumption normally is that they are in some kind of heaven. I heard it when Matthew Perry died. I heard it about Diane Feinstein and Bobby Knight and Jimmy Buffett. You hear family and friends make all kinds of reassuring statements 
When people die, I know they're in a better place. They've got their wings now. They're having a party in the sky now. Most people assume heaven is for everyone and you have to be a really awful jerk not to have that said about you after you die. That's because most people assume heaven is for others because they want to assume heaven is for themselves. And I hope this morning we are reminded together as we look at how the Bible destroys that false assumption. Because for the Christian, friends, the reality is very different. And this is the big idea of our passage this morning. Heaven is not inevitable. But those who are there are there because of Jesus. And we dare not forget that, brothers and sisters. We should never stop preaching that. Heaven is not an automatic inevitability that's going to happen to everyone. But the Bible teaches that it is a very real place inhabited by those who are there because of the work of Jesus Christ. It's not some sentimental place that we can assume, but it's a place that's been made possible by our Savior, Jesus. And the Apostle Paul makes that real clear in Ephesians chapter 2, which is where we're going to be this morning. So if you will, turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians 2. And as you do that, uh, let's talk a little bit about the context of Ephesians. Ephesians is one of the four letters that Paul wrote when he was in prison in Rome. He was under house arrest awaiting his trial before Caesar. And he is writing in the first century to the believers in the city of Ephesus. See, Paul has a special love for the church in Ephesus. He visited there briefly on his second missionary journey in Acts 18, but he returned there on the outbound leg of his third missionary journey and spent about two years with that church, encouraging them, teaching them, preaching to them. And that's recorded in Acts 19. And then on the inbound leg, back to Jerusalem on that same third missionary journey, he gave a moving farewell address to the elders of that same church in Acts chapter 20. So it's with great love that Paul makes it real clear how heaven is possible. And he destroys the assumption that heaven is inevitable. And my soul needs to hear that today, and I bet yours does too. We need to never forget how heaven is possible. So let's read together. Ephesians chapter two is where we're gonna be. Beginning in verse one, the word of God says this. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up in him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus." 
For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one would boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So what do we see here? Well, I believe this passage gives us two contributing factors to the gain of heaven. There's our part and there's God's part. And if you look at your outline this morning, you'll see those two factors listed on the front and the back of the outline. We're trying to keep it simple this morning as we look at both contributing factors to the gain of heaven. Number one on your outline is our part. And we see that in verses one through three. That's what he discusses in those first few verses. And the first thing that jumps off the page when we look at verse one is when Paul uses the term dead. In verse one, look at it with me in your Bible. And you were dead. Now again, he's speaking to the believers in the church in Ephesus. And as he refers to their past, he says that they were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. See, by the time Paul wrote Ephesians, he had already explained in his letter to the church in Rome that the wages of sin is what, church? Death, that's right. The Bible clearly teaches that every lost person is spiritually dead and every saved person was spiritually dead before God saved them. And for those of us who are in Christ now, we didn't have some sort of spiritual sickness when we were lost. No, we were dead in every way that really mattered. The word that Paul uses here for dead is necros, from which we get the medical term necrosis which describes a, a, a tissue or an organ in the body. When it dies, we say that that organ or that tissue is necrotic and it must be removed because the cells in that tissue or organ have died. So Paul's not making a complicated application here. He means dead. And this type of death is death to the core. When God saved me when I was 13 years old, I was spiritually dead to the core. And if you're in Christ today, you were too before God saved you. We were dead to the core. Friends, that's our part. It's what we bring to the table in terms of the gain of heaven. So spiritually dead people do something that Paul says is specific. What do they do? Well, ironically, they walk. Look at what he says. Stay in verse one. Paul tells us, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And then he tells us what that walk looked like. Keep reading verse two following the course of this world. No surprise, those without Christ live by the standards and the values of this world's system. All lost people, friends, are driven by the ideologies that other spiritually dead people came up with. And our world's system has a hand that is guiding it because spiritually dead people also walk, as he continues to say in verse two, look at it with me, following the prince of the power of the air. 
Now I want you to notice two things in that second statement there. One, it uses the word following again to remind us that we are all followers. We will either be following Jesus or we'll be following our sinful heart. One of the two. It's a very binary system in the Bible. We're either a slave to Christ or we're a slave to our sin. But also notice in that phrase that a prince is mentioned there. He says, the prince of the power of the air. See, a king is not directly behind the world system, but a prince is. And that prince, the ruler of this world, that is Satan himself. But the influence of this prince is limited by the king of the universe, Jesus Christ. And he will ultimately bring down the reign of this prince. But it's interesting to note that the prince does not override the will of sinners. No, as a ruler, this prince, Satan, gives spiritually dead people exactly what spiritually dead people want. And that is, look in verse three, that is to live in the passions of our flesh. If you're under the age of 40, you may not know the name Flip Wilson. But Flip Wilson was a very funny comedian in the 60s and 70s, and his trademark line was, the devil made me do it. Which typically when Flip delivered that line was hilarious, but it's just not accurate. The devil can't make us do anything, but as he tempts us, he works in tandem with our flesh, and our flesh loves to cooperate with him. See, elsewhere in the New Testament, the book of James also affirms the same three enemies that Paul is describing here in Ephesians 2. The world, the devil, and the flesh. Those are our enemies. And spiritually dead people live for all three, and their fallen will cooperates happily with all three. This is how spiritually dead folks operate. It's how I operated before I came to Christ. And if you know Christ, it's how you operated before you came to know him. So with that understanding, maybe in 2024, we should be more compassionate towards lost people. Because as Paul says in the second half of verse three, we were by nature children of wrath. See, sinful people get exactly what sinful people deserve. And that is God's wrath. It's wrong for anyone to think that God's wrath and his judgment are just a theoretical construct. I assure you, it's not. Hebrews 4.13 makes it clear that no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. See, if you're outside of Christ... Your life and your eternity are not on an inevitable course towards heaven. You're actually on a trajectory facing God's wrath because of your sin. But if you would repent and turn from your sin and trust in Christ for salvation, your eternal destination most certainly will change. Because for those of us who are in Christ, our life was on that trajectory, right to hell. And now by God's grace, heaven is our destination. And that's not because of our righteousness. It's not because of our good works. It's because of Christ's righteousness and his work. May we never forget that, church. 
So just look at the first page of your outline. Do you see what we contribute to the gain of heaven? Death. Following the course of this world. Following the prince of the power of the air. Living in the passions of our flesh. Carrying out the desires of our body. It's not a real impressive contribution toward the gain of heaven now, is it? In fact, it's offensive to a holy God. Let me ask you a question. Did any of you besides me gain weight over the holidays? If you're not sure, do this with me. <laughs> Just do this. Maybe one pound, maybe two. Actually, the truth of the matter is it's probably worse than we think. But we don't know how bad it is until we step on the what? Scale, that's right. Friends, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 is a scale to tell us just how really bad it is. That whole page of your outline is humanity's contribution toward the gain of heaven. And even though a lot of folks would, would, would admit, yeah, 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 we're all sinners, I get that. They still assume heaven and they dismiss what the scale says that as sinners, we deserve the wrath of God, which is eternal death and hell, not eternal life in heaven. Jonathan Edwards, the great American preacher and theologian of the 1700s, once said, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. Friends, our contribution to the gain of heaven is our sin. To the prospect of gaining heaven, we bring that, only that, which disqualifies us. That's our part, and it's not good news. But what about God's parts? Number two on your outline. God's part. We see that in verses four through nine. I want you to look in verse four in your Bible, and I want you to look at how Paul starts verse four. Simple phrase but God. I want you to say that with me. But God. I want you to say it like you mean it. But God. Just two words, but it's so profound. This is the pivot point in the passage which turns everything. The hopelessness that comes from our sinfulness as it's described in verses one through three gets shifted and that hopelessness is interrupted by the hope of the gospel with the phrase, but God. A great preacher, Martin Lone Jones, has an entire sermon on just those two words in this passage. And I'll put a link to that down at the bottom of your outline. See, the assumption of heaven that most people make gets completely turned on its head with the statement, but God. Lest any of us think that the gain of heaven has something to do with our effort or what we might bring to the table, we are set straight with that little bitty phrase, but God. Just when hell was inevitable for every person everywhere, heaven now becomes possible with just two words, but God. What in the world has God done? What's his part? Keep reading verse four, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. See, when God saves anyone, 
He does so for his own glory in order that he might display at least two attributes about himself, Paul says here. One is his rich and boundless mercy that he mercifully chooses to not give a sinner exactly what a sinner deserves. Salvation displays his mercy, but it also displays, secondly, his love, his great love for sinners. You know, the book of Ephesians begins with love in chapter one, verse four, and it ends with love in chapter six, verse 24. But let's be clear, this is not the touchy-feely emotional roller coaster that most people think of love as today. No, this is agape love. This is God's love. It's an unconditional, rock-steady, reliable, relentless kind of love. It's a love that sees us through times where nothing else makes sense. It's a love you can trust. This is the love that God has for sinners. In salvation, God displays his mercy and his love. And both of those are descriptors of what he did on his part. So what did he do? Look at verse five. Verse five, he made us alive together with Christ. Some of your translations may say he quickened us, which is so appropriate. Let me ask you a couple of questions. What does a sick person need to get better? Think about that for a minute. Maybe medicine, maybe surgery, maybe both, right? What does a tired person need to get better? Rest, yeah, maybe food. What does a person who's in trouble need to get better? Well, they need somebody to help them. And all of those would have been usable metaphors that the Holy Spirit could have inspired the Apostle Paul to use here. But what metaphor did he use in verse five? Not sick, not tired, not trouble, but he actually continued the metaphor from verse one. We were dead and now God has made us alive with Christ. Medicine, surgery, food, rest. They're of no help to someone who's dead. What is the only thing that can change a dead person's current state? A resurrection. And that's precisely what happens when God saves a sinner. That's why verse six continues that God's part is also that he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. For those who are in Christ, we are both raised and seated with him. See, for every sinner that calls upon the name of Jesus, the grave is not where they're seated. God spiritually resurrects us in the moment of our salvation and he will physically resurrect us one day for heaven. We're raised with him and we're seated with him. Keep on reading though. God's part also includes in verse seven, him showing us the immeasurable riches of his grace. Now, Paul did mention mercy earlier, and now here in verse seven, he mentions grace. And the difference between grace and mercy are important. Mercy, as we've already seen, is not giving sinners what we rightfully deserve. But grace goes a step beyond mercy. Grace is giving sinners what we don't deserve. Lots of church people think that grace is only a New Testament concept. 
and that somehow God evidently was really ticked off in the Old Testament, but now that Jesus has come, he's calmed down. Nothing could be further from the truth. God's grace is in both the Old and New Testaments. Think about the account of the flood in Genesis chapter 6. There is one overriding problem in Genesis chapter 6, and that's the sinfulness of everybody on the planet. And everyone on earth gets exactly what sinners deserve, and that's death, with the exception of one family. Eight people. Eight people are, giving, are given something they don't deserve and they take refuge in a boat that protects them from the wrath of God's judgment and that refuge delivers them to a new home. Does that sound familiar to anybody? It's the story of God's grace in salvation. Friend, the stunning thing about the flood is not that so many people died in the judgment against their sin. The stunning thing about the flood is that anybody was rescued and saved at all. That's the essence of God's grace. And how does Paul describe that grace? Here in verse seven, look at it. Immeasurable riches. You know the problem with earthly riches is that they don't last. That cool thing that you got for Christmas, <laughs> well, it's gonna break one day or it's gonna wear out one day or even worse, it's gonna become embarrassingly obsolete. It's true. I bet none of you have the amazing iPhone 3 in your pocket right now, right? Earthly riches promise satisfaction, but they don't ever fully deliver it. That's the trap of earthly riches. But for those who trust in Jesus, heaven is the unending result of the beautiful riches of God's grace. Heaven truly is the final everlasting gift for God's children. His grace will certainly save a sinner, but the riches of his grace are so immeasurable that that grace will also carry that saved sinner all the way into eternity with Christ. And so how does that grace come about? Well, he explains that in verse eight. Look at it with me in your Bibles. For by grace, you have been saved through what, church? through faith. Through faith is also God's part. Don't miss that. You may be familiar with this verse because salvation by, by grace through faith has been a foundational principle in Christianity even before the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write this. But I'm going to guess that some of you are thinking, now hang on just a second. Shouldn't my exercise of my faith fall under part one on the outline? I mean, it's God's grace, but it's my faith, right? So, so how is faith God's part? I'm glad you've asked. We need to look really, really carefully at verse eight. Look at it with me. He says, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. I want you to notice two words in that statement. This and it. Now, before we even define what this and it are, can we agree that they're referring to the same thing? I hope so. 
Read it very carefully again. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Lots of people get tripped up on what this and it are referring to here. So let me use an illustration. Maybe this will help. Maybe it won't, but maybe it'll help. Hypothetically, let's say that Paul is describing salvation by chocolate through peanut butter. Run with me here, okay? Instead of salvation by grace through faith, he refers to it as salvation by chocolate through peanut butter. So the verse would read, for by chocolate you have been saved through peanut butter, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. So let me ask you, in that example, what are this and it talking about? Well, it's not just referring to the chocolate. And it's not just referring to the peanut butter, but it's talking about the whole thing. This and it refer to the entire previous statement about salvation, not only the grace, but also the faith. Now, are people required to believe in order to be saved? Yes, absolutely. But even the faith to believe on the Lord Jesus is a gift from God. That's Paul's point. Don't miss that. You see, we have such a deep and distorted need to fix ourselves and save ourselves and justify our salvation. So much so that if faith was from us and not a gift from God, we would boast even about our faith. That's precisely why in verse nine, Paul goes on to say that salvation is not a result of works so that no one may boast. Imagine heaven full of a bunch of people bragging about how they got there. Strange, wouldn't it be? Oh yeah, God provided the grace in Jesus, but I brought my faith. That's the argument that verse nine destroys. And that's what we would do if faith came from us. Remember, we were dead. Our salvation and our place in heaven are so completely of God's doing that even the faith necessary to believe in the gospel is a gift from him. Brothers and sisters, salvation is all of Christ. And we find great comfort this morning in knowing that with certainty, those who have died in Christ Jesus are now in his presence. But at the same time, everyone who is outside of Christ, for them, hell is truly inevitable. And hell is only avoidable by coming to faith in Christ. God in his sovereign grace and for his own glory is in the business of saving sinners like you and I. And we are saved from his judgment in hell for all of eternity. And instead of us getting what we deserve, we get what we don't deserve. Instead of us becoming objects of God's wrath, we become objects of his love and his grace and his mercy. And for all who turn from their sin and trust Christ for salvation, our gain is heaven. And Jesus is why we'll be there. Oh, heaven is a very real place, but it's not inevitable. And those who are there are there because of Christ.